Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by HearHis.com. The Making of a Nation The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter 8, Part 2. Section 4 Moses' Call to Public Service. The solitude of the wilderness gave Moses ample opportunity for profound reflection. His previous experiences made such reflection natural, indeed inevitable. Born by the caravans over the great highway from the land of the Nile or from the desert tribe to tribe came occasional reports of the cruel injustice to which his kinsmen in Egypt were subjected. In these reports he recognized the divine call to duty. When perhaps at last the report came that the mighty despot of Ramses II was dead, Moses, like his latter successor Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, saw that the moment had come for decision and action. It looks to many scholars as if three originally distinct versions of Moses' call have been welded together in the narrative of Exodus 3, 4, and 6. Each differs in regard to detail, history, Bible 1, History, Bible 1, page 161 through 165. According to the early Judean prophetic account, Jehovah spoke audibly to Moses from the flaming thorn bush. In the northern Israelite version, the moment of decision came to him as he stood with his flock on the sacred mountain Horeb. Like Isaiah in his memorable vision of Jehovah's presence, the inner consciousness of God and the compelling sense of duty led him to cry out, Here am I! Likewise, in the late priestly story, God's presence and character were so deeply impressed upon him that he seemed to bear an audible voice, according to the view of those who accept this interpretation, even though the latter priest believed and taught that God was spirit, not like man clothed in flesh and blood. Thus, the different groups of Hebrew narratives in their characteristic way record the essential facts in Moses' call to public service. Each has preserved certain important elements in that call, and the late editor has done well to combine them. Even as Isaiah caught his supreme vision of Jehovah and of duty in the temple, so to Moses the prophetic call probably came on the lofty heights of the mountain in which he, in common with the Canaanites, believed God dwelt. The wilderness, with its flaming bush, spoke to him God's message. Recent writers have felt and forcibly interpreted the fascination and the message of the desert and plain, none more vividly than the Welsh writer Roscomio, in describing the experience of one of his rough, self-reliant cowboy heroes. Two days ago he was riding back, alone, in the afternoon, from an unsuccessful search after strayed horses, and suddenly, all in the lifting of a hoof, the weird prairie had gleamed into eerie life, had dropped the veil and spoken to him, while the breeze stopped and the sun stood still for a flash in waiting for his answer, and he, his heart, in a grip of ice, the frozen flesh a crawl with terror upon his loosened bones, white-lipped and wide-eyed with frantic fear, uttered a yell of horror as he dashed the spurs into his panic-stricken horse in a mad endeavor to escape from the awful presence that filled all earth and sky from edge to edge of vision. 
Then, almost in the same flash, the unearthly light died out of the dim prairie. The veil swept across into place again, and he managed to check his wild flight and look upon him. His empty lips were gibbering without a sound escaping them, and his very heart shivered with cold for all the brassy heat of the day. But the breeze was wandering on again. Under the great sun the prairie spread dim to the southwest and tawny to the northeast. Only between his own loose knees the horse trembled in every limb and mumbled the bit with dry mouth. All was as before in earth and sky, apparently, but not in his own self. It was as if his spirit stood apart from him, putting questions which he could not answer, and demanding judgment upon problems which he dare not reason out. Then he remembered what this thing was which had happened. The prairie had spoken to him, as sooner or later it spoke to most men that wrote it. It was a something well known amongst them, but known without words, and as by a subtle instinct, for no man who had experienced it ever spoke willingly about it afterwards. Only the man would be changed. Some began to be more reckless, as if a dumb blasphemy rankled hidden in their breasts. Others, coming with greater strength perhaps to the ordeal, became quieter, looking squarely at any danger as they faced it, but continuing ahead as though quietly confident that nothing happened saved as the gods ordained. The motive power in all of Moses' latter work was that transforming vivid sense of Jehovah's presence that came to him on the barren mountain peak. Also fundamental to his call was the recognition of the crying need of his disorganized oppressed kinsmen in Egypt. This appeal to all the instincts begotten by his shepherd training, for they were a shepherdless flock in the midst of wolves, through the ages the inhabitants of the parched stony wilderness had looked with hungry eyes upon the tree-clad hills and green fields of Palestine. The early traditions of his ancestors also glorified this paradise of the wilderness wanderer and led Moses to look to it as the haven of refuge to which he might lead his helpless kinsmen. Vividly and concretely the ancient narrative tells of the struggle in the mind of Moses between his own diffidence and consciousness of his limitations on the one side and on the other his sense of duty and the realization of Jehovah's power to accomplish what seemed to man miraculous. Was Moses' inner experience like that of the other great Hebrew prophets? Who? Like that of Jesus? Does every man who undertakes a great service for humanity today pass through a somewhat similar struggle? How about Grant on leaving his home at Galena, Illinois? Lincoln at the great crisis of his life? Section 5. The Education of Public Opinion Like every man who catches a vision of a great need and undertakes to meet it, Moses had to educate public opinion. Whatever the form of government may be, whether monarchy or democracy, it must ultimately rest upon the will of the people, and the shaping of that will is often a statesman's task. In a democracy, the expression of the people's will is readily determined at every election, although, in many cases, owing to the number of issues, this result is not clearly seen. 
In a despotism like Egypt, there is no ready expression of a people's will. However great their sufferings, they must endure until they feel that the evils of revolt are less than the evils of oppression. Then, by means of revolution, they carry out their will. In what ways did the exodus resemble, in what ways differ from a revolution? Compare Moses with Washington or Samuel Adams as leader of a revolution. During the last few years in China, there has been great dissatisfaction on the part of many millions of the people with the rule of the Manchu dynasty. It was, nevertheless, for many years the people's will rather to endure the evils of a corrupt government than to take the risk of war. At length, however, after years of propaganda by skillful leaders, war appeared to them the lesser evil, and their will was carried out by force of arms. The government, in this direct way, was forced to recognize the will of the people and to grant their requests. A statesman considers not merely his own views regarding the best methods of governing his country or of gaining special ends, but he must carefully consider also what plans can in practice be carried out. In all free governments, only those policies can be put into effect that meet the approval of the people, and one of the greatest gifts of a statesman is the ability to ascertain, with few mistakes, how far his proposed policies meet the public will, and how he can so put his plans before the people as to convince them of their benefits. In the latter days of the Egyptian bondage, the Israelites made frequent complaint of the oppression of the pharaohs, bemoaning their fate as serfs. But for many years after their sufferings had become severe, they had not yet been roused to a determination to throw off the yoke of the oppressor. Even when Moses first attempted to rouse them to make a struggle for freedom, he could not breathe into them his own bold spirit. What measures did Moses take to incite the Israelites to action? What measures did he take to convince Pharaoh of his duty toward the Israelites? Did he present his case truthfully? Was he justified in the measures taken? At length, not from the acts of the Israelites, but from the plagues that afflicted the Egyptians and the insistent demand of Moses, coupled with the belief that the plagues were sent on account of divine displeasure, as a punishment for unjust oppression, the Hebrews were enabled to escape. What is the contemporary Egyptian testimony regarding the plagues? History Bible 1, pages 176 through 177. Do the earliest Hebrew records imply that these were miracles or natural calamities peculiar to the land of Egypt? The statesmanship of Moses led him to seize the opportune time for freeing his people from bondage. Only the influence of the religious sentiments among his people and their belief in Jehovah together with the religious awe felt by the Egyptian rulers enabled him to take advantage of the circumstances so that he could rescue his people. In most countries, religion is a powerful influence often made use of by rulers, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, to direct the action of their subjects. The Greek church in Russia has for many decades been, perhaps, the most important weapon by which the Russian czars have kept their people in peaceful submission. If China loses her Mongolian provinces, 
it will be because the religious leaders of Mongolia are controlling their people. Can you give in the United States an example of a people largely dominated by the religious motive which controls most of the affairs of their everyday life? How far was the religious motive responsible for the settlement and upbuilding of the New England colonies? How far, and in what ways, may a statesman today appeal to the moral and religious feelings of the people in order to promote national and international welfare? Section 6. The Training of Modern Statesmen In training administrative officers in the leading countries of Europe and in the United States, emphasis is laid upon a knowledge of history, of constitutional, administrative, and international law, politics, economics, diplomacy, and any other subjects that may fall within the scope of action of the special official. When, however, a lawmaker or a high administrative official deals at first hand with a great population, it is extremely important that he be so experienced and so fitted by temperament that he may know his people. He must see how far he can go without arousing too much opposition. Even in promoting good measures, it is often essential not to go too fast if he is to succeed. Every statesman of modern times, as well of those of bygone days, must have the interest of the people genuinely at heart if he is to be, in the best sense of the word, successful. What did Moses seek for his people? Liberty? Prosperity? Religious freedom? Confucius, the great Chinese sage, from his study of human nature and of government five centuries before Christ, had learned that the rule of justice in the state promoted prosperity. At length, a young ruler made him his prime minister. The result of his wise and just measures was to bring into his country so large a number of immigrants who preferred to live in a country where justice reigned, that the prosperity aroused the envy and hostility of the neighboring states. In consequence, measures were taken to put an end to this just rule which was felt to be so detrimental to other kings, unwilling to adopt the same just means. Finally, the wise Confucius was treacherously driven from his post, not, however, until he had proved that the counsels of justice and religion were those best suited to the welfare of the state. This is a common experience in all lands and ages, but perhaps nowhere else has the lesson been so frequently and so thoroughly taught as in the history of the Hebrews, that the most essential factor in a statesman's training is the acceptance of the principles of justice and righteousness. In other words, quote, God is the most important factor in human progress. Questions for further consideration. Is it the duty of a government, in order to promote the welfare of its people, to set aside at times the personal convenience, even the personal welfare of individuals or of certain classes? If an inheritance tax falls heavily upon the heirs of a rich man, ought the state to collect it? On what grounds is a state justified in withholding liberty from criminals, from children? Many of our states compel citizens to work in repairing country roads, 
Is this temporary peonage? How do you justify a state in compelling citizens to risk their lives in war? In what circumstances would a state be justified in compelling its citizens to labor? Did circumstances justify Pharaoh? Why were he and his kingdom punished? Is it ever right for an individual to raise his hand against a recognized and established authority? Or when there is an established government, should an individual ever attempt to punish crime or avenge personal wrong? Were our revolutionary forefathers right in resisting the demands of King George? Are numbers essential to the rightness of a cause? In what ways does God today call men to do an important task? Do you consider Lincoln a man raised up by God for a purpose and called by him to service? If so, how did the call come? Was Moses' call similar? Should a clergyman have a definite call to his life work? Does every man have such a call, if he but interprets rightly his experiences? A working girl had seen the story of Moses at a movie picture show. Afterwards, she commented as follows. Our walking delegate is a regular Moses. He said to the factory boss, You let my people go. In what respect is the labor struggle today similar to that in Egypt under Moses? Subjects for Further Study 1. The Egyptian System of Education, Breasted, History of the Ancient Egyptians, 92-94, 395, History of Egypt, 98-100, Maspero, Dawn of Civilization, 288, Airmen, Life of the Ancient Egyptians, 328-368, 2. Origin of the Jehovah Religion, Budi, Religion of Israel, 1 through 38. Gordon, Early Traditions of Genesis, 106 to 110. Hastings, Dictionary of the Bible, Extra Volume, 626 through 627. 3. The Practical Training for Statesmanship of Augustus, Gladstone and Lincoln. Plutarch, Lives of the Emperors, Morley, Life of Gladstone. A. Good Biographical Dictionary. Brown. The Message of the Modern Pulpit. 4. Compare the government of Egypt under Pharaoh with that in China in the days of Confucius and with that of Greece in the days of the Siege of Troy. Homer, Iliad, and Odyssey. Life of Confucius. End of chapter 8